0: In this interview, I am joined by Metzel Wangmo, a Lama in the non monastic Aro Ter lineage of Tibetan Buddhism. We learn about Metzel's explorations in meditation and shamanism that led her to commit to lifelong study with Natchang Rinpoche and Khandro Dechen. We discuss how Metzel's background in Steiner education influences her teaching style and hear the story of the death of her first apprentice. Metzell recounts meeting and falling in love with her now teaching partner Jaguar Dorje after many years of singleness, and the adjustments that relationship demanded. We also discuss portions of Metzel's paper on Vajra romance, including the importance of reconciling the inner male and female aspects. So without further ado, Metzel Wangmo. Metzel Wangmo, thank you for joining me on the podcast.
1: You're very welcome Steve, it's a pleasure.
0: So often when I interview people the first thing I ask them is how they became interested in uh, things like meditation or in your case Tibetan Buddhism and things of that nature. So how was it that you first became interested in this whole area?
1: It's always really difficult to know where something might have started. So obviously I wasn't I wasn't brought up well, I don't know if it's obvious actually but I wasn't brought up in a Buddhist culture um very ordinary about as middle of the road as you can get in terms of upbringing, probably kind of middle of, uh, Britain or middle of England near Birmingham, uh, kind of lower middle class, um, very ordinary parents, a teacher and an engineer, and, um, a pretty ordinary, but delightful, I think, upbringing. In fact, I can't remember that much about it. And my mother, uh, once when she and my sister were reminiscing about something wonderful that happened when we were younger. Um, I said, oh, I don't really remember that. And she said, oh, I don't know why we bothered giving you a lovely childhood. You can't remember any of it. Um, And I think actually that's probably going to be the problem with me going back. I don't remember that much. Um, As I said to mom at the time, I think if you'd given me a horrible childhood, I probably would remember it so I think it was that it was uh, just lovely um but I do remember that i was i was mom was a Quaker my father wasn't but mom was brought up as a Quaker and lived in uh, in the in the chocolate quaker world she lived in um Bourneville and birmingham um and We were taken to Quaker meetings when we were younger. I think when I was maybe about eight, I think we said my sister and I said, we don't really want to go anymore. And I think that was because of the God bit. i would not particularly taken to that. But I do remember really enjoying the quiet parts, which I don't know if you know what happens in in Quaker meetings, there's a lot of sitting in silence. Um, And I did actually like those bits. So I remember that. and I also remember there was a time, this is one story that does stick out or one memory that sticks out for me, when I went to uh, London the first time, when I think I was about 11, uh, and travelling on the tubes on the metro and um, hearing the announcement when the doors goes about mine, the gap and being... Uh, finding it hilarious I can just remember thinking it was very funny and that you know the gap was always the uh, the bit that was interesting and so that that was lovely later on in life when I started trying to teach myself meditation and I realized actually yeah it's, it's the gap is the bit that's quite that's intriguing that you have to mind in fact um but I didn't you know I didn't have a great uh spiritual awakening or anything I I was passionately enamoured of my uh, best friend's elder brother when I was at school and he was into, uh, he was a student of um, Gurdjieff or Gurdjieff's tradition. Um, So I think when I was about 13 I got really into reading Gurdjieff. I'm pretty confident that it was just because I wanted to be able to show off to him and rather than a big interest to be honest. Um, But I I can remember thinking all this, the the things from Gurdjieff about the fact that most humans are in a sort of state of hypnotic sleep um, and we need waking up. That really did kind of gel, not just with the fact that I was fancied um, Ian. Um, That and also the fact that there was... That uh, there was a dance, there was sacred dance in the in the factories. That can remember being really intrigued with that. Um, so I, you know, I guess those were the first sort of times when I thought actually there's a lot more out there, and that made me. Um, that felt quite uh, what's the word almost kind of uh, warming because I'd always felt a little bit like i'm sure most of us i'd felt a bit like i didn't really fit in my family although they were really lovely and i i there's a huge amount of admiration there and respect for what um i learned from them i always felt like maybe i had been adopted or something you know i felt like i was a bit kind of i just didn't feel the same i didn't feel like i took the same things seriously or uh had a the same world view um So that had always, I think that had always been there, this, as long as I can remember feeling like there's something more uh, than what we're kind of being given all the time. Um, But I I don't think anything really happened until, in terms of getting particularly interested in Buddhism, it didn't really happen until maybe in my 20s when I I taught myself to meditate um, when I was quite a bit younger and then I practice all kinds of different things. I practiced some Sutric Buddhism for a while. I was, um, I did quite a lot of shamanic practice with some different traditions and I, everything was uh, pointing me in a kind of, it felt like it was getting closer to something that felt right. Um, I studied uh, traditional Chinese acupuncture, five element acupuncture. Um, for four years when my son was small (laughs) and that's when I was living on the boat in in Oxford Um, and that uh, that really again that kind of hit a few very definite uh, little bells or hit bells rang a few bells Um, particularly about the elements I think I think that's where I really started with a sort of just a a kind of deep love for looking at the elements and how they uh, manifest and what there is to be learned from looking at the elements. Um, And I think the fact that I chose to study traditional five element acupuncture was because I just had this sense that Eastern thought generally, I'd, I'd studied philosophy at university too, but not particularly that much Eastern philosophy. But I'd always had this thought that, you know, Eastern... Um, ideas were just felt like I could resonate with them more they their the whole eastern approach to health and ill health made much more sense to me than any western allopathic model so I think that had always been there so various things had happened um, and then I heard I was actually uh, working and doing some um, shamanic courses with spirit horse i don't know if you know shivam o'brien and erica indra they're people you might you might want to um interview them actually um splendid people but they were uh, they were teaching at spirit horse in wales and they were te- they teach and they taught and they teach um a whole range of approaches in terms of, I think they have a lot of sources in terms of Native American shamanism, but European shamanism, South American. <clears throat> but there were also students of uh, nak chan ram shen at that time. I didn't actually know that, and I hadn't heard of nak chan ram shen I hadn't read any of their books. I hadn't heard their names. Um, but when I did, uh, from Erica and Shiva and I I realized that actually everything that they were saying that I was really interested in and really made sense to me came from there. Um, And that kind of culminated, that sense culminated with a a night on uh, doing a shamanic practice, a night spent on top of a mountain in Wales on my own practicing. And during that night, it just got very clear to me that I just want to go and find this Nat Chung Um So I came down off the mountain. I haven't ever really wavered in that, actually, since that night. I went and I found them. They were. It was actually just Rimshay because Candida H. had just given birth at that time to Robert. This was twenty uh, odd years. Nat Chung was giving a weekend of public teaching in the West Midlands, somewhere obscure. So I, went, I signed myself on for this weekend of public teaching. and I can remember, um, I asked the organizers of the weekend if I could have an interview with Rinpoche before the weekend started. And so I, uh, I had a, a little chat with him on the Friday evening of the weekend um, where I just sort of announced myself and said, you know, I want to study with you. And he's, well, you haven't met us, or he said, what have you read? And I said, nothing, and, you know, and I was just kind of, I think I was quite mad actually. And he must've thought I was mad, but um, they were kind enough to uh, take me on as an apprentice. And that's where I've been ever since. Um, that's unusual for me, because I think I've moved, you know, I've moved with where- what life was doing a lot um over the years but um and i was 30 something when i uh mid-30s probably when i met matrimon shane but from that moment onwards i haven't ever had any uh, doubt at all that vajrayana is the path i'm interested in and that they are the teachers that i'm interested in
0: that's fascinating i'd like to loop back and pick up on a few of those points what was the meditation that you taught yourself in your teenage years?
1: It was really, ju- it, it turns out that actually, it was really just silent sitting. Um, I didn't do any, I didn't follow any program. I mean, you couldn't, I mean, you'll know that back in the uh, seven, late 70s, 80s, there wasn't, you know, there wasn't um, that much available. You had to get books and things. Um, I read a little bit of Zen and I can't actually remember now who by or what. Um, and I really just got from that though, this sense that you just need to sit and let go of thought. And that's basically what I did. That's basically what I taught myself. S-
0: some people, when they when they describe a feeling of, how did you put it, being a bit different from your parents or, or your family, having a different sort of set of values. I'm curious as to what that difference was, but also sometimes when people say that and they look back, they they speculate perhaps that they had some sort of reincarnation uh, uh, past life that still had a strong influence or something of this nature. And I know that uh, reincarnation is something that's central to the Arotere lineage in terms of its, uh, its founders, Nakhchang Rinpoche and Khadrudevich. so I'm curious if you've interpreted that difference in that way. Uh,
1: no, not really. I'm, um, I'm, I'm, I'm open to all kinds of things, but I'm, I'm, as most people who know me, I'm incredibly, I like to be incredibly pragmatic and I have got a a bit of a horror actually from, uh, it's something I particularly dislike in the kind of world of spiritual teaching is when people make things magical, when I think the world is quite magical enough and we don't really need to do that. So even if I thought that, uh, you know, even. And it's interesting that you say that it's important in the Alatair because it's important in terms of our lineage history that reincarnation exists, but it's very much not important in terms of teaching and practice. And in fact, it's very rarely mentioned um, other than when, if you're trying to describe the lineage history, uh, because it, it really doesn't matter what somebody was, it's what they're doing in this lifetime. you know. And if we get caught up in, you know, there's there's some remarkable uh, practitioners from previous lifetimes who've behaved appallingly in the current lifetime and there's all kinds of people who are doing remarkable things who were possibly the, the the monastery dog last time or something you know they're just it just seems like a complete red herring to me to get wrapped up in so um I guess I think that if somebody finds Vajrayana and a lineage, and yeah. there is just this strong feeling of having come home, and that everything resonates, even if you don't like everything about it, I mean, but there is this underlying kind of fundamental resonance, that the chance, and if you then stick with it, that you know that's what uh, Natsang Rinpoche has said to me before, you know, because lots of people feel that. You know, people get excited and they say, oh, yeah, this is it, you know. Uh, but if you go, oh, this is it, and you're still going, oh, this is it, in 40 years' time, the chances are that you've probably had some previous connection to it because it's such a strong pattern, uh, strong. So um, I guess I think, you know, the chances are uh, that I have some connection before, but it's not something I ever spend any time thinking about because that would just stop me doing what I need to do now, rather than. Um... I feel similarly about Bhutan, actually, which we might come on to talk about. You know, I had, I've had, i always, from um, from a from, I heard about Bhutan when I was a, I don't know, young teenager, probably, for the first time, and I got really interested in it, and I read some books about it. So uh, when we first uh, got invited to go there, or we were going to go to talk at the Vajrayana conference, I was like, you know, an excited idiot. And Jackie was like, "Oh, you know, I, can't, I don't know if I can be bothered to go to Bhutan, really." You know, he wasn't that. He didn't really know anything about it. I was like, "Oh, I've always wanted to go to Bhutan." You know, so I had a similar thing there. And again, you know, you could you could get there and think, "Oh, this feels like coming home because I used to live here or something." Maybe it just feels like coming home because it makes sense, and um, it might not be anything to do with the past life.
0: That's very interesting. On the other hand, of course, you've had a history in shamanism, which I think could be seen to be very pragmatic, uh, but could also be taken in a rather rather magical direction. So I'm curious as to your uh, background in shamanism, what your involvement was there, and how that kind of plays into this uh, magic versus pragmatism point.
1: Mm. Well, the first thing today is I haven't got a lot to say about it because i haven't got a, i didn't have a lot a lot of experience in it um and what i encountered really that um i particularly enjoyed were the, were the connections with uh nature or with the natural world and with the land and um with elements again um and also just and animals and this connect you know this uh being aware of the fact that there is there is more to what's going on than uh, maybe if we just read the tabloid newspapers, we would think. Um, that's really what I got from those practices, and um, it was only a short amount of time. And interestingly, you know, that that's the that's partly what I first uh, what. Erika and Shivan were teaching that I first resonated with as well was this connection with the elements but actually they were talking about the elements as they are talked of in Vajrayana there and that's what intrigued me um, so yes I don't have but I don't have enough uh, as you can already tell I can talk for you know I could do Olympic talking I could go on and on and on but uh I really don't like talking about things that I don't, I, I'm don't. not actually knowledgeable about or don't have any experience of. So I would feel I, I wouldn't want to talk about my... I just connected with some of these practices that uh, where you were making connection, really.
0: By that, do you mean things like uh, spirit animals and that sort of thing, totem animals?
1: Yeah, but no, I didn't even particularly get into that. It was more just uh, being in and being aware of the elements moving. Much closer, actually... Uh, as I found out, to the, the practices of drala that we have in, in Vajrayana, uh, where you're just being aware of the the, um, the world that's so usually perceived as non-sentient being sentient. I think that's the practices that...
0: Can you say a bit more about that?
1: Just that it is all sentient. Um, this is the teaching on the nine skies, which I'm sure uh, did Nattaong Ramesheng Kanada talk to you about that. No, maybe not. Yeah, but yeah, there's a, t- there's a teaching within uh, Zogchen and certainly with, within the Arrowed uh on the Nine Skies, which is, uh, and it's something that I can't give now, you need transmission uh, from uh, that Chen Rinpoche Candidate but it's uh, a teaching about this ver- that the explains that um, all phenomena are sentient. That's a little
0: nutshell. So you met Nag Rinpoche in Kenrodekchen, you said, tw- 20 odd years ago. What did that relationship look like when you, you went there to the retreat in the West Midlands? You uh, had an interview and you were accepted as an apprentice. What was the course of study that you followed and how does that relationship function? Another
1: good question. Well, the apprenticeship mod, uh, model that... Nakcham Rinpoche and Candidate Chen set up well originally Nakcham I guess before Candidate Chen was teaching with him as well um, it's really it's a, it looks a little bit untraditional because we're here now doing it like this but um, yeah, I, th- I believe it's quite a traditional model in Vajrayana actually to have a main teacher there may be many teachers but to have a uh, a heart guru, a main teacher, from whom you um, receive instruction for teaching. And that's still the, the model that uh, Rimshen Kandradachin have set up. And we now have with the Brevet Lamas as well. So we now have other teachers like Jagu and I who also have apprentices. Um, and it's a a model where there's the... The basics of practice within the Arotair, the fundamental practices within the Arotair, everybody is taught and that's what everybody starts with. But then practice might take you off in different directions depending on your interests. Munchen and Candidation are very uh, good at reminding people and letting them know that you, know, you, you need to be interested in practice. It needs to be, there needs to be a bit of passion there um, otherwise, it's hard work and some of it's boring and um, not comfortable and, uh, you know, all kinds of other things. So um, having something that ignites a bit of fire in terms of practice is going to be more useful for people. So that's why different people's practice can go off in different directions. And I think mine for me was re- with Rinpoche and Candle HM was really just... Um, Right from the beginning, having this, as I said, this, this real sort of uh, conviction that this was uh, this style of practice was what I really wanted to uh, promote, actually. So, this was the, the, the practice style of the Gurkha Changlo day, this non monastic, non renunciate style of practice, which just seemed so important and still does, is the most important thing to me. Um, <laughs> so I think just realizing that, you know, there is this whole way of being a very serious Buddhist practitioner out there, available, but people don't know about it. Um, very little is known about it. So, um, and it seemed like, you know, R- Rinpoche and Candida HM were the only people really promoting that in uh, in any way that you could come across. Um and so I think that's what, for me, that's what I picked up on very quickly when I started studying with them, was that, you know, that's what I really wanted to promote. Um, and that ended up with fairly, uh, not, not that long after I'd been an apprentice, really, of um, having a conversation with another student of theirs in my kitchen. This is something I can remember. Um, Where well, we were actually talking about the fourteen root vows, uh, which are the, the the tantric root vows. So this is the sort of tantric equivalent of the monastic vinaya, uh, and it's in it's particularly the the root vows that the Gurkha Changla take these yogic practitioners uh, within Vajrayana, um, and we were talking about the fact that there are these two root vows which are uh, slightly contradictory. Well, the seventh one said we should never reveal tantric teachings to those who are not ready to receive them, the seventh root vow. And the twelfth root vow says we should never refuse to teach those who seek instruction. Um, And we were having this conversation about, you know, that these two... And I was laughingly saying, you know, it's um, it's quite easy to keep the seventh one about never revealing the tantric teachings because nobody knows we're here and nobody's going to ask us about it. Um, um, I said, actually, that means if we if I follow that logic, my own logic through there, then never refusing to those to teach those who seek instruction seems quite easy to keep at the moment because no one's going to ask me because um nobody knows and that was when we had this idea that uh well this student that we were talk- that i was talking to uh he said to me well what would you do then if you wanted to make it uh more available and i said well i don't open a buddhist center on a busy street on the high street, on Gloucester Road, in fact, Buddha Boulevard in Bristol. And then people would see this yogic style of practice and not just the monastic style, which everybody has got a picture of in their heads with the Dalai Lama. And, um, and he said, well, go on then, do it. And he kind of challenged me and he um, extremely kindly, I'm not going to say who he is, I don't want to out him without his... Um, agreement but uh, he very kindly said well I'll I'll bankroll it if you want to open a centre I will help with that and uh, with the finances of it and for a few years and that's what we did so we opened this centre which was Arrowling which we opened on Gloucester Road in Bristol Um, and that was uh, really entirely from having taken this love and um, passion for Gurkha Changlo practice from Rinpoche and H and thinking, how do I further that instruction which um, Rinpoche had from Dujan Rinpoche back in the 1970s where Dujan Rinpoche asked him to establish the non-monastic practice, the Gurkha Changlo in the West. Um, So this really feels that, to me is what apprenticeship is ultimately. It's where we're all continuing the same, um, continuing along the same vector really, in terms of making this style of Buddhist practice more available in the world.
0: One of the features of that apprenticeship relationship that's often emphasized is the individual way in which the lama works with the student or the apprentice so I'm curious what's the general curricula that you mentioned everybody gets more or less and what were the ways in which you worked specifically which directions did you go off in in terms of your own personal practice at those later stages Mm, good questions
1: um well the the basic Curricula that we all uh focus on is first and foremost is silent sitting meditation so the practice of the four now doors starting with the practice of shiné um, that is for everybody the main practice because all the other practices are actually dependent on that and then there's a body of uh it's really um approaching practice from there being practices of body, speech and mind you know, from the three levels of practice uh, which um, should be there in any body of teaching really, I think, um, Buddhist teaching. So within the, within the Arata, we have the, the four now jaws as the, the practice at the level of mind in terms of the uh, silent sitting meditation. And then there's the practices of yogic song. So um, everybody learns some of the yogic songs, some of the melodies. So these are actually, ultimately, they have secondary effects, some of the songs, uh, some of the sung mantras, um, but their primary uh, purpose is one of finding the presence of awareness in the dimension of sound. So the are chain practices. Um, so there's song. Uh, And then there's the physical practices at the level of body. So everybody learns some of the physical practices to begin with as well, usually starting with cournier. And alongside that, as soon as people feel comfortable enough to do so, which it's it's a very, you know, how long is a piece of string this? You know, for some people it's, uh, I want it, I want it now, you know, after a week. And other people, it might be three years. Whilst they're learning the songs and developing their Shine practice. Uh, but then they'll be taking on some yidam practice as well. And everyone starts with uh, either Pamasambhava practice if they're women or Yeshitsogyo practice if they're men. And um, developing uh, the practice in terms of accumulating um, mantra recitations. And also sung mantra. Uh, so everyone starts with a yidam practice too. So those are really the areas that somebody new to apprenticeship is going to be uh, offered teachings in to begin with. So the sitting practice, yidam practice, introduction to yidam practice, and then a peaceful yidam practice, and then uh, yogic song and some of the physical practices. So then in terms of what people might do, in terms of what people might get very interested in the physical practices and want to learn some of the other systems, because as you know, there's also the, uh, we have the physical systems in the Linguesa uh, Tema, which is nested within the Arotere too, um, as well as the other physical practices within the Arotere, or somebody might get interested in Yidam practice in particular and want to start developing that and perhaps... Um, we would practice an accumulation so uh, many many boom many many hundreds of thousands of recitations of a mantra including some in solitary retreat before we'd move on to taking on another year down practice within the Arata and we would start with peaceful practice and then move to joyous practice would be some time before you would some years before you would get to wrathful practice um I should have said also that we encourage people from the beginning as soon as they feel uh, happy enough to do so to involve themselves in some solitary retreat practice and again that might start very uh very simply with short periods of solitary retreat one day or something and then build up Uh, because our our solitary retreat schedules are very intense so we do a lot of intense practice in a short amount of time um, so people build up to that as well but that's another aspect of being an apprentice but in terms of what people might uh, then want to specialize in um, there are so many different aspects to the terma and to the lineage and the teachings available within it it's a huge although Rinpoche keeps telling me it's a very small terma it's a huge body of teaching. So uh, not that I want to say I don't believe in, but it really is a huge body of teaching. It has so many different practices. And I'm sure you know that we have the practice, the craft practices. There's the dance, the chum. So there's uh, dance practice, craft practices. There are the physical practices. Um, And then there's getting involved with anything where, I think for me, one of the first things I did was get involved in wanting to teach a bit. And I went through an interesting thing where I I think I've not been an apprentice that long where I thought actually I'd quite like to teach. And I was a teacher anyhow. I was a Steiner school teacher. And I thought, you know, this is something I can do. You know, I can do teaching a bit. So, you know, this is something I could... uh, Maybe do with you know I I so want other people to know about these practices. Maybe I could get involved in teaching them a bit. So uh, this was before I took ordination. So before I was ordained, I set I'd set up a, a sitting group and um, yogic song practice group in Bristol. Um, and I guess then you know a few years down the line from that, there was opening Arrow ling and um, starting to teach there. So teaching was always one aspect and that's one uh, huge area in which um Kandra candidates and I work with them you know because they have this teacher training program in effect for the Brevet Lamas and um, they did after some years they did suggest that I actually started teaching and took apprentices myself so that was a big step to go from teaching to actually teaching with personal students um, and that was a very important you know change for me in terms of that's when I kind of thought oh oh shit actually is I think what I thought first of all. <laughs> it's like you know that's it now you know you're basically entirely public property for the rest of time um, if you take that on.
0: What do you mean by that statement you're public property?
1: Well, you're just, it's like being, um, I'm sure relates and use used this term about being vicars of Vajrayana with you, did they? They said that, yes. This, and you know, that really uh, does kind of resonate for me in terms of, um, not that I actually know what being a vicar is like, I suppose, but my idea of being a, a kind of village vicar um, and being always available I think once you've got apprentices, that is the case. You know, you're always available to some degree. That's the case as soon as you take ordination in the Gurkha Changlo Day, because you're basically saying that you will keep these uh, root vows of never refusing to teach those who seek instruction, being one of them. Um, So you're always going to be there and be available for um, to teach anybody who wants to know anything about practice and in particular if you have your own students you are um and also it's just you know that's now kind of you know that's what I'm doing in the world you know I've done lots of things I've been mental health nursing I've been a Steiner school teacher an acupuncturist I ran a school for well a center for uh really um troubled young people for Kids' Company for some years. Um, I've done lots of different things in my life, but this is kind of it now.
0: You're a bit of Steiner School teacher and and also participated in this teacher training program with Nguyen Chengwipa Cheng Contradiction. I'm curious if your experience as a Steiner School teacher, which is a rather different approach to conventional education uh, as it's in this country, in the UK anyway, how that affects the way you teach. And also, What have you learned about teaching from your exposure to Nakchan Rimcheng and Kandra Thatchen?
1: Well, I guess uh, what I've uh, learned from them is that I will spend the rest of my life trying to emulate them to some degree, you know, because their uh, style of teaching is just remarkable. and I, th- I think it also is in terms of how they teach, which is that it's very student-led. Um, you know, we're all adults uh, in this situation, or hopefully. Um, so it's our responsibility to take, which is the case for all apprentices to some degree, you know, it's our responsibility as an apprentice or as a student or as a, a student in teacher training is to, um, Take the practice somewhere. So you you ask for what you need in terms of teaching and support. And the main way that Rinpoché and Khandrochen teach is through example. You know that is by far their greatest teaching for me. Um, particularly, you know, when I think about times where I was um, I was very uh, close to them geographically and therefore able to be around a lot during the whole period when Robert was dying and you know to have that uh, truly remarkable that gets a bit overused that word but it was a really remarkable experience to be with them through that period and to be with Robert actually um, but to see them so totally live the teachings you know to to uh, walk the talk um was you know a a real gift um they were of course uh unutterably sad but they were not in the slightest bit bent out of shape by it at all in terms i never saw them not even on the night when he died when i was over there Um, even then they were still able to laugh as well as cry and they were able to uh, respond to apprentices that needed something from them they never that never moved (laughs) and you know that was such um, a piece of teaching in itself so I think that's what um, there's the ways that they work with us individually but there's that's the main thing I would say is the example and I also think that that's the case with Steiner teaching too. You know, good Steiner teaching is—they um, talk about you know the authentic presence in the classroom of a, a, an authentic adult who leads by example of kindness and awareness. You know, that that's at the heart of Steiner teaching too, at its best. I was reminded by your question about the Steiner teaching actually because. My, f- my first apprentice, and I say mine because this was before Jaguar came along. And so I was teaching for, um, I think, about five years or something before Jagger, um joined me. Um, <coughs> uh, my first apprentice was also a Steiner teacher. I, di- I didn't know her through the Steiner world. She's someone who walked through the door of Arrow Arrowling one day um, when we just opened it. Um, it turned out that in her, one of her previous lives, she'd been a Steiner teacher for many years in Wales. Um, and we had a lot to talk about right from the get-go. Uh, and she was a really remarkable, wonderful woman. And she became my first apprentice. Uh, as soon as she heard that Rinpoche and had had um, said that I could start to take students, she asked me about 30 seconds later if she could um, been my apprentice which was wonderful and um, she is uh she was uh, a great teacher for me too and unfortunately within a, a year or so of her becoming an apprentice she was quite ill uh, and she died a couple of years ago um she died of uh, liver cancer in the end um but that was one of the things that made me really realize that um this was a kind of vicar's kind of job. Was that whole death process of uh, that Zixal went through? Because we had a, a small sangha by that time. I had a body of apprentices there as well, who all equally adored Zixal. She was one of these people that um, universally loved, um, and she universally loved everybody. Um, and she was a, a real mother to lots of people, too, uh, throughout her life, uh, within the Buddhist world and outside of it. Um, and she, uh, as when she was dying, the last three weeks she spent in hospital. I think it was three weeks, just over three weeks, and really quite ill. And most of the time, unconscious or uh, moving in and out of consciousness. Um, but our Sangha set up this thing. I really didn't want her to be left alone at all during that time. Um, but my mother was also very ill in hospital in Gloucester. So my mom was up in Gloucester in hospital and Zigzag was in Bristol in hospital. So um, there was just no way I could be in both places. So what I was doing was spending the day with my mother in hospital and then going down and spending the night overnights with Zigzag. And all the rest of the time, um, the Sangha were there with her. So they put together this rota so that she was never left alone. And there were people there with her singing Yeshiksogyal mantra throughout the whole three and a half weeks, 24 hours a day. Um, and that was, you know, that was an incredible thing to, uh, to witness, that um, care for somebody. And it really brought the Sangha together very much at the time as well. And then, when she died, um, it was on boxing day in the morning, and I wasn't actually there at the point that she died. I got a call from one of our other apprentices Paul, and he said she's with, i think she's just gone and so I drove straight down there and Then I realized I don't know what to do now you know i i want I don't want her body to be moved and to be shoved off into the hospital morgue, um particularly because sixel uh, spent a lot of time in India in her youth and uh, loved the warmth. She was a bit like a cat or something. You'd usually find a in a window on a sill with a bit of sunshine coming through it. And uh, I just thought, oh, God, she's going to hate it, you know, being put down in this. And I also wanted to uh, engage in practice with, the, with the, around the body. So I didn't want them to take her away but because it was Boxing Day, all the hospital administration was closed. And so they couldn't get um, anyone to sign her out. And also there were no, um, there were, I didn't want to bring in a funeral firm. Um, and we had this wonderful moment where the doctor who was responsible for signing her death certificate came into the room and uh, To do the official signing, and started crying and said that she had just been so moved watching all of us over the three weeks, and she'd never seen anything like it. Um, And she said, "You know, is there anything I can do for you now?" And I said, "You can let me take her now." I said, "I can't get anyone to release the body because the um, office is closed because it's Boxing Day." And she said, "Well, I'm only allowed to release it to a." a funeral firm you know you have to be a funeral collector to come and take and i said how about if i become one of those now and she said yes that's fine and she signed uh, all the paperwork so that we could take six hours body out and they closed the corridors down and let us pull up outside it was like a heist or something we, we pulled up outside with a big volvo um outside the back door of the hospital and um took Zig Sal's body into the back of the car and drove off home with that. All completely illegal, I think. And then we took her home and brought her back to uh, our house in uh, where Jaguar was waiting and he'd got the shrine room already because we had a uh, shrine room at our, in the garage built in our house in Gloucestershire. And we brought her back there and we kept her there for the six days until the funeral, which we did all ourselves as well and um, buried her. So. It, And the whole sangha were involved, you know, we all painted the the coffin, people were there practising. And that really felt like um, this is the job that people do when they're uh, taking care of people's spiritual uh, life within a community. It felt like such a community at that time when she was dying. And the the other thing that I thought of in terms of, being reminded of this vicar of Fadriana job was when jagir and I went out to the east of Bhutan for the first time out to the far east and we, we went to stay um, in this village on the mountainside with our very good friend Sonam's uh, sister and her family and we arrived in the evening and um, her brother who is also a, a nakba is a yogi practitioner um, sorry, her husband, Chucky's husband, um, he wasn't there. The children were there and the mother was there and he was out and apparently he was out. They told us he was out. He was doing a, a ceremony for someone who needed a house blessing nearby. Um, and so we went over and joined him for that, which is a whole tale in itself. But on the way back from that, later that evening, uh, he kind of disappeared um, when we got home. And we said, oh, what happened to Saylan? Is he not coming back with us? And he'd got a call from somebody else in the village, many miles away, which he had to walk to across the hills in the dark. Uh, someone had um, was very ill and they thought possibly dying during the night. So he'd gone over there to practice. And the next morning when we got up uh, really early, Saywang had gone already. And that was because he'd got a call to go and see uh, a sick child, um, And I realised, God, it's exactly the same as what we do, (laughs) except, you know, he's going out to sick children and having to walk through the uh, night to get there. We mainly answer the phone or, um, you know, but we're equally available for apprentices in terms of being there to support uh, what's going on in their lives. Not that we, you know, we're not therapists and we don't give advice on that, but we're there in that role of uh, being the person who did the funeral. I've done a few funerals and weddings, which, of course, are much more glorious to do. And that's a a lovely aspect of of being a teacher, is getting to perform weddings, especially within our lineage. That feels like a fantastic thing to
0: do. Well, in your lineage, being as it is non-monastic, things like relationships are emphasised, including teaching couples. Later, I'd like to ask you a bit about your one of your papers that you submitted to the International Vajrayana Conference in Bhutan in 2019, all about the history and practice of Vajra romance. But leading up to that then, and in that context, how did you meet your teaching partner, Jagiro Dorje, and how did that relationship form?
1: I'm laughing a lot because there's, <laughs> there's quite a few... Um, It'll be interesting to see if you ask him this question, Steve, it'll be interesting to see what he said.
0: Yeah, well, I'm going to ask you both. So it will be interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
1: Well, it was all a bit of a shock, really, for me. I think i would got, in fact, I pretty much spent most of my life being single, although I I had lots of fun when I was younger, don't get me wrong. Um, but I wasn't in a relationship with anyone until I was in a relationship with my uh, son's father and that was when I was about uh, I think Will was born when I was 28 or 29 so um, you know it's quite old really um, to have been single and then after that uh, relationship um, ended when Will was about six or seven years old so that was for maybe six years Um, and even then during that six years although we were together and very much together and very much in love we didn't uh, we didn't live together all the time because I lived on the boat with Will Um, and then after that I didn't have another relationship and I think I had settled into the idea of not not doing really Um, and although the teachings on romance the the Kan poe the teachings within the Arata are so uh, pivotal and important, they don't exclude people who are not in relationship, although they are particularly about relationship they are also about one's relationship with reality and one's relationship with the world, being in love with that actually um, so um I kind of, you know, I wasn't really thinking. I think I'd spent a lot of time thinking about it, and then I'd given up thinking about relationships.
0: Was there a reason why you'd come to that decision?
1: I think just being busy, really. I can re- I can remember actually saying to somebody, some, somebody asking me, a friend asking me about it at one point, and saying, you know, where the fuck would I fit it in? You know, I, I they would have to be doing what I'm doing. You know, they'd have to be... A practitioner as well because otherwise when would I see them you know I'm either at work or I'm teaching or I'm uh, talking you know it just wouldn't fit you know, I'm got on retreat or I'm in retreat you know they would have to be a practitioner really um, so I think that's where i would got to is you know they'd have to be a practitioner and there weren't very many of those around to be honest um, not very many um, single or within a kind of sensible age group there is actually quite a big age difference between jaguar and i but um it um that there would be limits to how far you could probably go with that you know i wouldn't have wanted a relationship with a um a very young man that would be odd um so (laughs) so i think i had just thought oh there just isn't time you know uh I had met Jaguar, I met him 20 years bef- uh, ago, yeah, 20 years ago. I met him for the first time on a retreat in Holland, um, which was a big sort of international sangha retreat that Rinpoche and had with it, where there were about 40 or 50 people from America and Europe and from Britain. And I'd not long uh, been an apprentice, but um, Jagia was there but I didn't really talk to him and there was a large number of people and he seemed, you know, he was sort of uh, younger than me. I think I didn't, I didn't really talk to him, but I do remember him because, um, one instance in particular, one evening, excuse me, there was, um, I was sat at the same table as him for dinner. There were various dinner tables and Nat Show was on that table as well. And various people had been talking away. And then, We'd had the main course and then they brought out for the, it was the, the place we were in was a sort of youth hostel type place, um, an old castle, I think, in Holland. And they served the food. We weren't doing our own food in the evenings, And they brought out this big platter, like a big oval platter of ice cream. Uh, for dessert and I think they probably brought two big ones out and put them on our table and there was way too much for everybody, and I don't think anybody even touched the second one and then um, Rinpoche just made a comment about uh, it not being good food you know not being eaten you know being wasted and it was a very sort of throwaway little comment and then he carried on talking he didn't really say anything and Jaguar didn't uh respond to the comment he didn't say anything but I noticed after a few minutes that he was just eating the ice cream and he ate the whole lot he ate this whole massive (laughs) amount of ice cream uh, and never said anything but he just ate it and carried on um, very quietly and I can remember that very vividly and thinking wow that's um, wow how is he not sick I think was the first thing I was thinking, but then I was also thinking, wow, that, you know, that's an impressive bit of just sort of quiet, getting on with um, listening to what the teacher says and um, acting on it without making a big fuss. Um, so I think he did impress me then. Um, and then I'd see him occasionally over the years on other retreats. Um, and one I do remember, probably not so many years before we got together, maybe a year before. Uh, he came to a, a retreat, uh, an apprentice retreat that Mac Chung and Candidate HM were holding in Wales. And I was organizing it. Um, and I was also organizing the food in the kitchen. And I had people on, on a rota to come and help out in the kitchen for the cooking. And I remember him being in there and uh, he was chopping onions. I remember that. Um, and he was just behaving oddly. He kept saying quite weird things. And I, uh, um, at one point, I said, what are you doing? Why, why are you talking like that? And he just looked at me and he said, um, mate, so I'm flirting with you. And I just went, well, don't, and carried on doing the cooking. And that was, I can remember doing that, which is most amusing now, given what's happened since.
0: What kind of weird things was he doing?
1: I can't remember I honestly, I honestly, I don't know anymore. I can't really remember. I just, it it had something to do with onions. I (laughs) I don't think it was like the ice cream. I don't think he was eating the onions, but he was doing something. Um, yeah, that's a very good question. I might have to try and remember. Maybe he'll remember. And then, um, I'll let him tell you maybe a bit about, um, what happened to him in New York when he went to see Nat Jan Rymashay. But then we started communicating. Jagger got in touch with me about a film a project and a film in particular that he wanted to get made, uh, Hidden Yoginis, which is a big uh, passion of Jagger's, is to get some film recording of, um, or to make an actual film for people to see of, particularly of Joma Masampel, uh, Dechen Rinpoche, Kunzang Dorje's wife. So uh, Jaguar is very close to Kunzang Dorje and Joma Sampel. So um, he was passionate about getting this film off the ground and he emailed me about that because he knew that I knew uh, a young uh, filmmaker in Bristol who'd shown some interest in helping us with some Buddhist films. So he got in touch um, and then we started. It was uh, largely a, a, a WhatsApp flirtation that went on for some months, actually. And then he came over. Um, he came over for the first time to stay the the weekend that we were that Zigsal was getting ordained. Natural missionary candidate, and thought it was a good idea that she got ordained before she died. So she came. He came over then. So he was with with us for the last six months of Six Sal's life as well. So that's when he was first here. So it was quite, um, it was an interesting uh, entry into joining me with teaching, coming into the Sangha at that point, actually.
0: How did you go from not being interested in him, rebuffing his onion oriented advances in the kitchen to eventually entering a relationship with him, number one. And number two, what was it like to transition from being, I should imagine, quite self-sufficient, quite settled in the single life and assuming that's how it would go on. So not really actively looking. How was that to transition from that into being in a partnership and living with somebody and being around somebody all the time and that all that that brings?
1: Hmm. Well, the first part of that, I think, was um, he's funny He really makes me laugh a lot. Um, And I think it was probably that, of course. You know, when we're uh, laughing is pretty close to um, all things marvellous, really. Um, So I think, you know, in the same way as when you're falling in love, you become more open. You also become more open when you're laughing, when you're finding things, when you're appreciating the humour in something. So I think I'll probably just... uh, it was a question of realising actually that there was something there that I could be open to um, and then uh, appreciating it, which is not that difficult to do.
0: Was there anything um, difficult about that? The reason I ask is because I think going from mode to mode, being really a relationship person, either looking for one or being in one, be very difficult then to be by yourself but similarly if you're used to being by yourself opening up to the possibility of a relationship I've seen some people find that very difficult so was was there any conflict or um, confusion in that process or were you really quite open to going with that flow
1: there was no confusion in terms of uh, do I want this or not Um, that the the conviction about being with Jaguar is the only other conviction I've had like that was the conviction about wanting to study with Rinpoche and And in terms of it then never wavering. Um, I mean, of course, that is actually something in terms of practice with, with our students. I would advocate now, you know, I mean, if you make a decision, then just stick with it and drop the angsting about it, you know, because then you can get on and you know, appreciate and enjoy it. So, I would actually tell myself to do that anyhow, but that happened quite naturally with Jagger. You know, it was like once I'd gone, okay, let's do this thing, then there didn't seem to be any question about it. Um, but no, it wasn't easy. I was really, really crap at it. Um, he was much, much better than I was. I was so used to being on my own. I could, I mean, the first few. Uh, a few months I think he had a, probably had a horrible time because I I just didn't know how to do it really I'd just forget that I was in a relationship you know I would um I mean the two examples I can remember really clearly are <laughs> having gone out shopping one morning and I came back and he he was there and he's like where, where have you been and I said well I've just been out and done the shopping he said, "Did you have? Uh, I didn't have my phone with me or anything." And he said, "You you didn't tell me you were going out shopping. You know, I was talking to you, just weren't there, and I was looking everywhere. i had been all around the house, been out in the garden. I didn't, you know, I didn't know where you were." And I said, "Well, I went shopping." He said, yeah, but you know, you you could have told me you'd gone shopping." And I said, "Why? Why would I? Get, <laughs> it was like it hadn't occurred to me that you would share information like that." And I would do do things like that quite a lot and also um, cook food or make food together and then just go and sit at my computer with the food because that's what I was used to doing and carry on writing or something whilst I was eating. Very bad, of course. Um, and he'd be like, you know, oh, you know, we, we could eat dinner together. <laughs> it's like, I was like, I was like, well, why? Because I've got to do this. And he's like, because that's what... Couples do, you know, they have dinner together and that's quite a nice thing to talk. And I also don't talk very much. I know that sounds odd, given the fact that I've just bent your ear for two hours. But if I'm able to not talk, then I just don't talk. So he would spend hours with me, with me not talking. And then he'd say, well, you know, maybe we could talk a little bit now. So I was just not used to it. So it was fantastic practice for me and really useful that I am he's taught me a a huge amount about how to uh, relate he probably won't tell you that I was rubbish at it though because he's too kind but I was rubbish
0: something in your paper I I think we won't have time to go into all of the details and all the points that I wanted to ask you about in your paper, maybe we'll do separately the two of you together about that. But one of the things that stood out in your paper was this idea of the inner Khandro and inner pao uh, qualities, the sort of inner contrasexual aspects in the system. And just to read from your paper here, you, you write, when a man loses contact with his inner Khandro quality, his outer quality becomes distorted What should be spontaneously manifested compassion becomes neurotic assertiveness. This assertiveness ranges from dominance to violence, depending to what extent his inner candro has become occluded. When a woman loses contact with her inner power quality, her outer quality becomes distorted. What should be spontaneously manifested wisdom becomes decorativeness. The decorativeness ranges from inconsequentiality to superficial obsession with surface appearance depending to what extent her inner power has become occluded. Women are attracted to the distorted male image because they seek to reconnect with power. Women have a natural relationship with power, but if they fail to realize it, they become drawn to seeking it externally. Women, however, are also attracted to men through recognizing the reflection of their inner power. Both occur simultaneously. Men are attracted to the distorted female image because they seek to reconnect with spatial sensitivity. Men have a natural relationship with spatial sensitivity, but if they fail to realize it, they become drawn to seeking it externally. Men, however, are also attracted to women through recognizing the reflection of their inner candro. Both happen to both simultaneously. Duality and non-duality flicker. I'm curious if you could give some examples of how loss of contact with one's inner contraceptual aspect would manifest.
1: Mm, good question. I should say, first of all, that although that's our paper and um, the, the teachings all come from Natural and of course, this is directly from them, uh, their words, yeah, uh, many of them. Um, that is the book, yes um so what does that look like the other thing that i it's really difficult to talk about the you know this is why when we teach on the candle power it tends to be a weekend it's quite difficult to get it across in a short um amount of time without it sounding very like other things but it isn't so um it isn't that whole kind of men are from Mars, women are from Venus thing. And it's not a yin and yang thing either. Um, And the idea of the inner and outer qualities, people get very hung up on that being male and female. And we're not talking about men and women, we're talking about what's discussed as the male and female aspects of reality. But it's not about gender in Vajrayana is incredibly fluid, you know, there is no idea of what Um, a man is or a woman there is no limits there is uh, it's entirely beyond limit and beyond definition so there isn't so it's hard to talk about this about women having inner uh, male qualities without people thinking you're talking about male qualities means men and men are actually like that or women are actually like so I just wanted to put that at least an attempt at that caveat in before I say anything. Um, But we have this, I mean, I think for me, one thing that was interesting growing up, just to bring it back to me again, um, one thing growing up though, was that my, I was, there was just me and my sister. um, And um, my father was an engineer, my mother was a teacher and my father was really very good at bringing my sister and I both up to think that we could be anything. You know, it was actually a shock to me when I discovered, I think I was actually at university before it hit me, that some women thought that their possibilities in life were limited by their gender. That literally just never occurred to me. I always thought I could do anything. So that sort of um, idea of there being nothing that's specific about being a woman was something that resonated with me very quickly with these teachings but the fact is that we have these qualities there are these inner and outer qualities with it with everyone and we have this um if we are uh if we are healthy in terms of our, on, on every kind of level energetically and uh, psychologically then um those inner and outer are entirely both available and not neither one is shouting louder than the other. um, and, uh, one is not occluded or diminished in any way. And that's what happens when we get these extremes, when these, the, uh, there's this huge imbalance between inner and outer. And that's when you do get these extremes of, um, know a man who's lost touch with any of his wisdom aspects of being you know it's it's also the same as talking about the emptiness and form of being we're talking about the non-dual experience of being so uh form and emptiness um compassion and wisdom or even just uh, kindness and awareness but if you know if a man has lost touch with his wisdom awareness quality then his uh and a woman as well, that this could be a woman, all of these can apply to women too. <laughs> um, but then if you've lost touch with that in uh, an inner wisdom quality, then you've lost touch with that sensitivity, you know what might move you about um, being touched by the the pain of others or the suffering of others. Um, everything becomes a thing where you have to uh, become bigger and bigger in terms of protecting yourself and so you get these uh extremes where you've got um the kind of uh rambo uh sort of king kong macho um is the far extreme of that and similarly if you have no connection with the uh compassion in a compassion as a woman then you may have lost touch with you know that's the ability to i mean compassion in buddhism is always active compassion it's the ability to act um to be effective um to be kind in the world not just think kind to actually be kind um and if we've lost uh connection with that then we lose that power that uh, ability to do that to be consummately effective um to have the confidence the strength, the conviction to do that, as so we can, can become uh, ineffective, uh, superficial,
0: often.
1: Um, so yeah, does that answer it a little bit without trying to get into?
0: It does. Yeah, I think that gives a good a good idea. For those interested in the the context of of this question and and the next one, which will probably be my last one, I will link to the paper in the show notes. So another thing, this this comes to mind really in the context of what you shared about entering to relationship with jaguar and the adjustments that were required there you also write if we already have the connection with our inner power or inner kandro we no longer need to find anything outside ourselves at this point men and women begin to dance with each other something becomes apparent that dissipates unrequitable gender needs once gender neediness dissolves into its natural condition a tremendous mutual appreciation arises appreciation arises because men and women catch glimpses of completeness in themselves so i'm curious about unrequitable gender needs i think that's a fantastic phrase i'm curious what you mean by that i'm also curious if your having settled into singledom was related to uh, just as you said li- a sort of lifestyle situation or or if it was to do with a kind of not needing to find anything outside of yourself because you've, you've integrated those inner aspects. It strikes me that entering into a relationship could disturb or create some quite upheaval in the, uh, if you want, harmonious inner domestic situation of one's inner power and inner kandro aspects now suddenly this other force or this other reference point is is involved somehow and that could upset that if one's reconciled one's inner power and inner inner kandro why bother
1: yeah yeah
0: there's a lot of lot of questions in there but unrequitable gender needs is certainly a tremendous phrase
1: yeah i am i can't remember where that might have come from but i suspect it's a phrase from rimshay i don't remember um but everything comes from him and candidate and so it will be probably um well I guess the reason you're right that um having settled into that um happily into singledom is a very good base for starting a relationship I think all of us know that if you uh if you need something from a relationship, then it's already uh, putting that relationship on a shaky footing, uh, a shaky ground. Um, if, if we need another person to complete us in some way, then we are already uh, compromising the possibility of having a wonderful relationship. Um, it's kind of obvious why that is, you know, is this, you know, the more, the more I need the other person to fulfill something for me the the less likely they are going to be able to do that um so and that's actually very much what this uh how this mirroring works and doesn't work um but again yeah, it's a bit lengthy to go into more of that but yeah it's that idea uh so i guess you know having got to a point where um you no, I always loved, I've always loved being physical and intimacy and relationships. I, I, uh, to have reached a point where, okay, if there's no more of that is okay, was probably a very healthy place to get to. Yeah. So I think, you know, that was... Um, and to have stopped wanting it to have stopped looking everywhere for it was a very healthy place to have got to. And, you know, that's through practice. It wasn't giving up. It was actually feeling that it was okay that that wasn't there. Um, But that doesn't mean that it's not a delightful thing if it comes along, you know. I I would also be quite happy to live a a, a single life too. So I I wouldn't want anyone to think that you have to be in a relationship to have a fulfilled life. No, that's absolutely not what I'm saying. Uh, because that fulfillment is there, you know, that possibility of that wholeness is there, uh, anyhow, because we are. Um, so uh, it was really just like a bit like the sort of cherry on the cake, really, when Jagya came along. You know, it's like this an opportunity to, uh, a delightful opportunity to practice some of these Kandopawa Nida Melongyu
0: practices. How long have you been uh, together, the two of you?
1: uh five years a few days ago
0: congratulations
1: thank you we realized it was april fool's day we only just worked that out though we hadn't realized for years that that that's when it actually was um yeah but the other uh the thing that's wonderful about somebody coming along about like that though is that it does shake your practice you know it shakes things in a way well it gives you opportunities you know to if you're on your own it's very easy to convince yourself that you're quite splendidly uh, serene and rising above everything and can cope with everything. You know, we all need, we all discover quite where our equanimity is when we're under pressure of some sort. You know, that's, uh, so to have, um, I always remember a good friend of mine when I was much younger telling me that uh, she'd always believed that she didn't have any kind of problem with premenstrual, tension or premenstrual syndrome or something she'd always thought she was a very lucky person and all these other women suffered terribly uh, until she got a live-in partner and then she discovered that she had terrible (laughs) premenstrual tension guess it's actually you know you need the mirror you need the thing to reflect it back at you uh sometimes to notice things so Jagger is brilliant for that. I mean one of one of the things he does for me is if if ever I'm at, at all um sharp with him or uh short or annoyed about something or um what else I doing? just not very talkative a bit with, with, withdrawn or something he'll he'll ask me um how my shina's going. Um which is, you know, like that's an outrageous thing for anybody to say to somebody else other than a partner who you adore. Uh, and then of course, when he says it to me, it just makes me laugh. And it reminds me that I need to get my ass back on the cushion if I'm feeling annoyed about something. It's nothing to do with him. Uh, it's me and where my practice is at. So yeah, having Jaguar there has been, um, it's challenging in many ways, brilliant ways. There is a whole aspect of the Khandro Pao Nida teachings, which are about seeking that kind of challenge. Um, uh, Which, again, is, yeah, we can't really go into that now, but that's also there in that teaching. Very useful.
0: Like kind of Chodpa kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. Could you say a little bit more about that? process of the the, uh, you you attributed to practice of coming from someone who's very much enjoyed the physical intimacy and then in some sort of a healthy way through practice came to a point of no longer searching for it constantly in that way and then i wonder what it must have been like to open up to that dimension again but what about that first half
1: well i think i should say that probably the the uh the looking for that that I was talking about probably had a much uh, greater psychological component, component as well, you know, a sort of em- emotional neediness as well as the physical. Because the, the physical side, the purely physical side is in- entirely possible to um, enjoy uh, as a solo pursuit I mean, it's, it's different in terms of it hasn't got that intimacy of another person, but in terms of it being, um, it can also be quite intimate. And um, certainly in terms of practice, you know, there are practices that you can engage in whilst um, enjoying yourself and appreciating yourself. So uh, I think having reached that point, that that then actually bodes for a much healthier physical intimate life a life of intimacy with a partner uh, because you're you're not needing anything anymore perhaps because you've um, already worked out how to do that yourself so then you can entirely concentrate which is what's there in the Kandra power teachings on appreciating uh, your partner and putting their um, pleasure before your own and, of course, what happens if, if both partners are putting the other person's pleasure before their own? Uh, you could end up with some horrible sort of British um, no after you, after you, no after you <laughs> on the bus kind of thing uh, in the queue. Uh, but actually what happens is you get this sort of, you know, uh, the possibility of this uh, exponential um, appreciation. So I think, you know, that that being able to be, happy on your own in every way in terms of sexual practice and everything is the ground of being happy in a relationship
0: Mm, that's very interesting yeah i'd love to ask you maybe then when the two of you together a bit a bit more detail about that because that is a really very fascinating area i'm also going to be interviewing jaguar separately the reason i'm asking about this relational aspect is it is emphasised in your lineage and you've written several papers about it and presented at conferences about it so it's something that you've spoken of quite a bit yourself and when we, we look to set up the interview something you emphasised so that's uh, for a bit of context for the listeners, one of the reasons why we've gone in that direction so much in this interview. Thank you very much for your time and listeners can can look for that Jagger interview. I look forward to that. He'll,
1: he'll, he's got lots of interesting things to t- talk about the Gurkha Changlo Day and what We've done in Bhutan and things as well. You know he's um, he's a, a very knowledgeable and um, well. you'll I'm sure you'll enjoy him when you get to chat with him.
0: Fabulous, well, Metzawaingmo. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Steve. Lovely to talk to you.
0: Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.